my dad had this conversation with my brother. I talk about it a lot where my brother was a teenager and had his first girlfriend and my dad thought it was a parent's duty to make sure that his son learned about the clitoris and that my dad actually dispelled myths because I think Hollywood and movies and porn make it look like everything is about intercourse when my dad thought it was just really important for him to know that for most women, pleasure is is experienced not necessarily through intercourse or penetration, but through other means. And so he gave my dad that talk and it was because my dad had had that talk from his father. Hey everybody, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Do you know what an algorithm is? gets thrown around a lot these days, particularly Facebook's algorithm, basically refers to a computer program that's out doing a task, an automated task, trying to assess data that's moving into and out of the Facebook platform, any other platform. And it tries to make an educated guess onto what content can and can't be published or what content to show you. Algorithm's pretty mysterious but it's very important in what we see and what we don't see in censorship. So the algorithm that Facebook is using censors health ads for women and for melanated people, people of diverse genders in a lot of different ways, even obese people. Uh, Because for example, there's a ratio on the algorithm that says the percentage of skin to non-skin that can be shown in an ad And obviously, larger people have more skin when they're in a bathing suit. Uh, So it shuts that ad off disproportionately to thin people's posts. But in this particular case, we're talking about the algorithm's inability to distinguish between women's health, periods, menopause, perimenopause, childbirth, and all of the important education, social and communal support, etc., that goes along with being able to speak about those things freely because it doesn't know the difference between that, living with a body for yourself as a woman, and porn. So the stigmatization of a woman's very embodiment has a high price. When I started Rosebud, we had a lot of challenges with getting shut down. That's since gone away. We've gotten whitelisted in some way, although periodically the ads get shut off and we don't know why and to go through a whole process of guessing and getting them resubmitted. It's quite a high operational tax. But we weren't the only ones having that problem. And Jackie Rotman, who's with us today, noticed that. And they put together an organization called the Center for Intimacy Justice to work on questions where women's health wasn't getting the attention it deserved and men's health was disproportionately being able to be seen. Uh, So she did a study, the organization did a study, and of the 60 businesses they surveyed like ours, 100% of them had experienced either ads getting shut down or their whole account getting shut down for basically trying to speak about women's health issues. Her study came out in January of this year, And it was so well-received. Many media outlets picked it up. And she's here to tell you more about what the response has been and what they hope to see and why having an algorithm that doesn't reinforce past stereotypes or past beliefs is an important factor for all of us being able to live in an evolving world in a place where we can go somewhere new and not just reinforce our existing beliefs. And without human oversight, that's what the 
algorithms will do. So a lot in this episode, Jackie Rotman, Center for Intimacy and Justice. When I started Rosebud Woman, I was kicked off of Facebook every other day. They couldn't distinguish between a woman's health and pornography. And we were going through this process of like, how do we speak truth to power and get this to change? And lo and behold, here we are a couple of years later, and you are doing that. Will you tell us about you and then the story of how the Center for Intimacy Justice got off the ground? Definitely. And that's powerful hearing that that's been your experience too. I am also extremely passionate about that. I started working on this in 2017. And that year I was discovering this wave of incredible entrepreneurs that were starting businesses, addressing women's sexuality and doing all this positive work for the world. And when I learned about the censorship that they were facing, particularly in advertising, I became obsessed with that issue. And I feel like it's so necessary for the innovation ecosystem to succeed, that we're allowed to talk about topics as women's sexual health. It would also enable more funding and more resources to flow into women's sexual health and wellness. So I started Center for Intimacy Justice. That's so interesting to hear that you, It's I think one of your colleagues had mentioned that you had even thought about creating a nonprofit at some point on this issue. But it, it felt like there were so many entrepreneurs doing all this incredible advocacy, and it was a full-time job to work on this issue on top of, you know, people were already running their whole companies. And so we created Center for Intimacy Justice with this being the first issue that we're working on. And we have heard now from over a hundred, well over 150 businesses that are facing this type of censorship. And we've been deploying a lot of different strategies ahead to try to change the tech policies that are censoring women's health. Yeah, I love that. It, it's it's centering women's health. I, I think that you couched it in some of the in the initial press release on the difference in how men's sexuality was handled and women's sexuality. So the first thing was just a parity issue. Can you speak to that? I think it's also seen so clearly from these two examples where in 2017, Hims and Roe were founded, which at the time were only addressing erectile dysfunction. And they quickly raised hundreds of millions of dollars at massive valuations to help men have erections. And very quickly, exceptions were made for erectile dysfunction where Facebook allowed them to advertise. And the growth of these companies, which are now valued at $5 billion and over $1.6 million last I looked at Hims' stock, would not have been possible without being allowed to advertise on digital advertising platforms. But besides the business disparities, which affects women and non-binary founders that are excluded from that, it also affects the types of messages that we see in our culture where men are being inundated with ads that say that their pleasure matters, their erections matter, and yet women can't even, are having barriers to finding ads to learn about vaginal dryness resources and menopause or to learn that their pain is valid when they're experiencing pain during intercourse and that there's ways that that can be avoided. So the lack of information affects not just our health, but also the cultural messages that say that some people's well-being and pleasure and sexual health matters while so many other people are excluded. Yeah, that seems to be part of the 
circle of confirmation circle, I guess, in terms of where uh, financial resources are held and how they can relate to the concerns that are being presented by potential investees, uh, as well as by the people who are making policy decisions at large tech corporations. When I started Rosebud, I kept joking with my friends that had I not had prior successes that didn't have to go out for capital, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine walking into a room full of men and having them buy into pussyceuticals to this idea of like natural, organic um, skincare products that would help a woman for herself and just to communicate the need. And so that it was kind of advantageous, but, but yeah, there's uphill battles all, all over the place. So this getting whitelisted process at a tech company is your goal to sort of create a list of companies that can get whitelisted? I think there's a few different solutions. Some are more structural. Some might be easier to achieve. Our ideal structural scenario is that the algorithms that are blocking ads in the first place for people with vulvas get changed so that they can more effectively tell what type of content is allowed. Because even Facebook has conceded that so many of these advertising censorship issues are mistakes. And the word vagina is so commonly flagged among other words that the ideal scenario is that resources are invested to actually fix the algorithm so that this flagging isn't happening in the first place. I do believe that it could be another scenario to create a verification system that says, okay, this is the health company. This is a company that is supposed to be allowed. So even if your algorithms would be flagging it, we need to know that, you know, this hundred, these these hundreds or thousands of companies have some way to show that there should be allowed. It, I wish that there didn't even need to be that system because so many of the men's companies are getting through without any type of verification. But it could be more practical in as a step to create a, a verification system because right now some companies occasionally are getting whitelisted, but it's really based on people's power and capital and access to connections at Facebook when it should be more systematic and more fair for based on the content of your product. Does that answer what you're asking or what are your thoughts about it? It, it does. It, it does answer it that, that we have a sort of, let's call it not the algorithm, let's call it the algorithm, the feminine version of the algorithm. Yeah. The, there's that. And then there's the sort of, I, I can imagine though that like gating might be a concern because there's still a lot of violence and aggression and sexual predation directed at women with those terms also. And so it's sort of a, it is a fine line. I, I mean, perhaps this idea of, of these advertisements or messages like this um, are permitted from certain companies or they get an extra review is a way to do both, like to allow them to pass into the public domain, but also to protect vulnerable situations, which still do exist, unfortunately. So what's the response been like since you uh, issued that press release? It's been amazing. And the biggest surprise that's been very exciting is that this was taken on by policymakers directly. And when I share about this, I, I'm sharing about it in the point that like policymakers in the U.S. government are taking action regardless of partisan stances or, you know, whose side, which side of the aisle it's on. But Senator Patty Murray, who heads the the health committee, it's called the HELP committee because it also deals with education, labor, and pensions, took on this issue, sent a letter to Mark Zuckerberg and to Meta requiring Facebook to answer a series of questions, including 
what steps they were taking in response to Center for Intimacy Justice's report. And the, the context on the report for those that this is new to is that our nonprofit studied 60 companies and found that, and they were all women's health companies or other vulva-related companies. And every single one of them, 100%, had experienced Facebook censoring at least one of their ads. And 50% of the surveyed companies had Facebook suspend their entire accounts at some point. So most people in that are running companies in this space already knew that, but the public and Congress and others didn't have that data available. So the Senate Help Committee has taken this issue on. And then Hillary Clinton actually tweeted at Senator Patty Murray asking, just curious, has Facebook responded to this letter? Which for so many people that have been fighting this fight, it made them feel heard and seen that people at the top of American politics were paying attention for the first time. So I've been excited from the policy response. And then 60 media outlets covered it. It sparked a lot of conversation. And our goal Number one, our goal is to change the actual tech policies so that these businesses can advertise and we can create a more equitable culture and systems around health and and support innovation that benefits women and people with vulvas. But we also have broader cultural goals around many of your goals around gender equity and helping people understand that their sexual well-being matters and that women and people of all genders deserve well-being in our intimate lives just as we do in any other parts of our lives. So we want to spark conversation about sexual health, intimacy, well-being, and point to the double standards as a way of helping us you know, inwardly look or start conversations in our own personal lives. So we've been really enjoying the conversations like this one and others that have been sparking more dialogue. One thing that I was surprised by, because when we started the company, we thought most of our customers would be urban centers where people were more open-minded. We have customers in all 50 states and in Canada, women all over the country, red and blue and purple. They all have these same concerns. And that has been the response from actual humans who are living in female bodies to being able to speak openly about this has been one of the most rewarding things about doing it. And we've also seen a bunch of apps emerge, you know, current with the products that are out there, like Hey Perry that's dealing with perimenopause, another very under-discussed topic. Um, you know, so, so in this, to the extent that people aren't able to address it with the tech giants, people are taking their attention off those platforms and putting it into app environments where they can speak freely. So it also feels like if they want to keep people's engagement, there has to be space for those conversations. Absolutely. And that's amazing that you're seeing engagement from people all across the country. And that's how I feel is that these topics around satisfaction and well-being and pain reduction affect anyone in bodies that are experiencing that. And I want it to be able to touch people across across state lines and um, there's such a need for transformation and it's beneficial for men as well for us to have a liberation around these types of topics. I was just speaking with this really wonderful intimacy advocate, Zoe Kors. She wrote a book called Radical Intimacy. And so much of the lack of the ability to experience pleasure is from what you're talking about, this sort of cultural lockup. Like I, I feel guilty or I feel shame, like shame and body shame 
are and the inability to relax are the top things that stop women from enjoying their sexuality. And when they don't enjoy it, their partners don't enjoy it either. So it's very self-interested to open your mind, gentlemen. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. There's this, I'm not sure if you've come across this research by someone named Sarah McClelland who she coined the term intimate justice in her research that obviously informed and inspired our name. But she did this research where she asked women and then she asked men all kinds of questions about their intimate lives, uh, asked about pain, satisfaction. And across every measure, the women were saying that their sexual experiences across specific objectives was was worse than men's, except for satisfaction. So um, despite women having more pain, fewer orgasms, they were just as satisfied as men in what they were reporting, which just showed that it was because their expectations were different. They just thought it was normal to have pain or it was normal to even experience like emotional distress or to just tolerate you know, when things could be so much more joyful and it speaks to a cultural change that's that's valuable for, for people to know that they – and I mean, it's just so inherent in, in how you speak and what you do. But I think a lot of people need uh, learning to even realize that like they're entitled to and their pleasure is valid. I'm hearing that we've set a very low bar for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So tell me where you want to um, – I mean, I love that you started this. And it sounds like it's very informed by research. Um, tell me about the women or the the people who are involved on your advisory board and the organization. We have we have an amazing powerhouse advisory board. Teresa Younger has been one of my mentors and dear friends for a long time, who leads the Ms. Foundation for Women. So she's the leader in the women's philanthropy space. And I think feels that these topics around pleasure are, are, are so often not discussed in the women's philanthropy movement. There's so much growth. So she's been an amazing mentor. There are two women in Sweden. One is Canadian, one is American, I believe, who have been catalytic in our work. So um, Wendy Anderson and Christina, I should learn how to pronounce her last name, but it's spelled like Lundberg. They started the case for her. They're two women who are investors and philanthropists and made their whole investment portfolio around menopause, menstrual health, and women's sexual pleasure, which was so innovative when they did it. So they've provided a lot of the, the funding for CIJ in our first two years. And incredible connections to people all over the globe because they're so critical for building an ecosystem and, and new infrastructure. And then we have a, a tech policy advisor, Jess Vigeld at Harvard Cyberlaw Clinic. We've been working with the Cyberlaw Clinic at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society for um, two years now. And they've been really instrumental in some of the legal strategies that we're planning to roll out throughout 2020 and 2020, you know, beyond that, um, or 2022. And there's two more. Natalie Keneally has been really incredible on fundraising. Um, and I also have a friend, Michael Tubbs, that's a politician who's been really instrumental on um, more of our policy and communications. And I'm like, I know there's one more advisor. And I'm Michael, I met Michael at, at Summit Series. Uh, when he was running for mayor, he's so wonderful. Oh, yeah, he's really that's amazing. They gave him a platform to speak to a lot of other young, driven people to uh, share his vision. 
or making a new sense of place and sovereignty and success in California's Central Valley. And uh, he was so compelling that he he got this wonderful fan base outside of his like own electoral circle. So I'm so glad to hear that he's he's supporting you as well. Yeah, those are some good names, Jackie. The Hart Berkman Center, come on. <laughs> yeah, and the, the other one that is queen is Polly Rodriguez, who's the founder and CEO of Unbound and created Women of Sex Tech in, a few years ago too. She's been instrumental and is like my dear, dear friend and close collaborator in the space, yeah. Okay, so you've got this great team. One thing about bringing about change that I'm encouraged by with your work is that it's one thing to know sort of the moral direction that a society should take that, look, we need more openness, we need more equity. What we're saying is really running against long arc, thousand year programming around women's bodies, but that, you know, people don't want to change. And so you're bringing all these other tools to bear. You're bringing legal tools to bear, financial tools, uh, making the argument for business, just why it's better for them. And then you're aggregating resources so that people can present a united front. What you're doing is like a, a, a object lesson in how change happens. So have you done this before? Have you been in the role of, of changing policy or being an advocate prior to this organization? That's such a, I love how you framed that. It's, I've led, this is the first, this is the third organization I've been an executive director of. Um, but previously I started a nonprofit that provided free dance programming for youth who otherwise couldn't afford them. And then I was hired to lead an organization called Spark that was a millennial philanthropic network doing grant making. But what I love about CIJ is no, I've never changed a global, a global corporation's policy that's informing our sexual culture before and and work to change an algorithm that has such massive impact. And so every day is a learning experience of we know what our goal is, is change this policy and 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 also support this liberation more broadly in society around our our intimate lives more broadly than this one algorithm. And so every day it's getting I think I've interviewed well over 65 lawyers, but really hundreds of experts over the last um, couple of years around, okay, what does it look like if we file a Federal Trade Commission complaint? And what are our act options under shareholder advocacy? And how do you lead a, an effective communications or social media campaign? How do you get New York Times coverage? So this is the first time that that I've worked for that large of a vision. And it's been an effort of many, many different minds coming together to address the problem. And I, I hear you saying it's a case study, and I hope, I mean, it will be interesting to look at it in three or four years and see which levers were effective and what were the learnings, because it's it's the case study that's still being written. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the Dame Products and MTA case. Yeah. So for so so this is beyond like just the tech giants. And um, do you want to fill people in on what that was about? Yeah. So Dame Products is a sex toy company based in Brooklyn, co-founded by Alex Fine and Janet, I believe, Lieberman. And they wanted to advertise in the New York City subways. This was in 2018, I think, that they submitted their ads. And at the time, if you for if you were visiting New York or living in New York, you would enter the subways and see these massive cactus um, advertisements for hymns, or you would see Roe with offering to deliver drugs directly to your door. So people were inundated with these images for ED. It was very current seeing sexual, yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say also you'd see like strip club ads. 
and all kinds of sexualized ads for women, but but okay, continue. Completely. Definitely. That's so true as well. And so they went to submit these beautiful sex toy ads that were, I thought that they were so wonderful They and they were beautiful designs and words and copy. And the, the uh, subway said, we don't allow sexual ads, despite having so many glaring other examples and they blocked their ads. So, and also prior to Dame submitting these advertisements, Unbound had done a campaign called What the F, WTF MTA in 2017 or 18. And then Thinks, which was a period company in prior years, had also protested and advocated around the MTA not allowing their, their menstrual health ads that showed a, a, a peach or a grapefruit. So there had been a history on this. And Dame ended up suing this New York City subways in 2019 after and then after a two and a half year legal battle, which was on free speech grounds and other grounds, because it's these are, this is a publicly funded subway system, they became allowed to advertise at the end of last year. And a lot of people have framed it as a win, but I actually, the day that they became allowed to advertise was one of the days that I found the most triggering last year because I still thought they were so silenced. They, you could not tell what the products were for. They were nothing like the original ads. They were so censored that people would see the ads and wonder what's Dame, which is, I guess, valuable in some ways, but it wasn't really educating with clear information. I think Alex very much said, you know, settling really feels like settling because it was a settlement and we didn't get all of the things that they wanted, which would have included the whole category being allowed to advertise and being able to say what the products do. So it was a step in the right direction, and and Alex and Dame and uh, led that along with you know others who had fought for that like like Polly Rodriguez and and the Thinks team as well. But um, so it was it was an amazing fight. But it just speaks to still the the excruciating double standards that the fact that that after two and a half years of legal fights and resources and an enormous amount of press and you know so many news outlets, we still can't advertise sexual pleasure for women on the subways in a sustainable way. Well, we will, we are moving, we'll be moving to a pleasure tolerant society, I'm sure at some point in the future. So it has been a really big surprise to see actually for me how fast the category moved. So you started this in 2017 or started thinking about this in 2017. I had been working on this a long time, but we launched in 2017. Also 2018, we sold our first product and now, you know, it's in freaking Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's like major companies. Congratulations. It's not congratulations for me. The, the category, it's the category that you could knock me over with a feather that the, this category went mainstream so fast. And I think it just really speaks to the underlying need, you know, and the underlying desire for it to be normalized. You as a, your body in its entirety is worthy of care. And there are products and support services and ideas and apps and blogs and, you know, people out there all trying to do it. It's, it's like the whole ocean is rising around normalizing and destigmatizing and even moving into celebration. So I'm super grateful for what you're up to. Um, is there any way for people who are listening to get involved and support you? Absolutely. And Christina, so it's amazing to get to be a part of that rising ocean with you and so many people that are leading the way. It's 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 such a blessing to I think get to work on this work. There's lots of ways people can get involved. We have a uh, 
our website is intimacyjustice.org. And on the website, we share the report that people can read with lots of visual examples. So people might be able to read the report, join our newsletter. We'll have a lot of different opportunities this year as we launch new strategies, new policy, legal actions, and other campaigns where people can get involved, amplify. We'll have you know strate- strategic points, places for people to directly contribute their voices and sign on to calls that we call on for different leadership at um, not just the companies, but the other parts of our society that that govern and regulate them. So definitely joining our newsletter and engaging with us on social media is one great way to join the conversation. We love talking about these topics anywhere. So we're open to speaking with with different groups and and communities about these subjects and the research and needs for change. And then always welcome and invite people to to financially support the work as well. So there's lots of ways to get involved. Well, we look forward to working with you on all of these things that you're investigating, um, things you're highlighting, this initial foray into the tech giants algorithms and all and policies and then also what comes after that because there's a, a lot in the intimacy justice field ishwish which is uh, the it's the international society for the study of women's sexual health just launched a customer facing like a, a public facing website to uh, provide more sexual education the kind that is really been reserved for sex therapists and OBGYNs, but should be available to everyone. And so we'll publicize that as well. And I think when people get more of a sense of the gap, the satisfaction bar will rise and you'll be like, why didn't I know this? I want my daughters to know this. I feel like it really is changing. So anything else you want to add? What do you see that's changing so clearly? Well, I did a survey, I want to say, uh, it must have been last September. It was, it was questions like, how easy is it to talk to people about sex, like your mother, your daughter, your husband, your friends, your doctor? And then we cut the answers to the data by generation. So like boomer one, you know, boomer two, generation X, all the, all the way down to millennials and it got progressively easier with each generation, but it was still never better than a three. Wow. And the hardest person to talk to was your mother. Mm, harder than your father? I didn't ask about father, but harder than your partner and harder than your daughter and harder than your doctor. Harder than your doctor too. Yeah. So so there's something in the transmission line between um, the mother and the daughter that is is softening, that now it feels like the younger the people, the easier it is to talk about it, period. And, and, and they are also healing the dialogue with their own mothers. And so I feel that's one of the very first places that the transmission gets amplified and softened is in this tender passing between mother and daughter and the willingness to speak about sexuality and and sexual health and intimate wellness and self-love and body love and decolonizing yourself. Mm -hmm. It's in the family. It's in all of these relational situations that needs to really soften first. And, And then there's a whole emerging category of what I would call paraprofessionals, where pelvic floor therapists, sexual coach, sexuality coaches, tantricas, this like paraprofessional community is stepping in to act, activate and advocate where doctors and 
sucked ad and all that stuff just didn't do its job. And so it does feel to me like there's a lot of movement outside of existing structures to try to compensate and correct for where those structures have failed. Wow. That's so powerful, both about these organic communities outside of existing structures, but also what I hear when you talk about the communication between mothers and their children and and how it's getting some of the passing on is coming from the children to their mothers, like coming upward. And one of the things that that makes me think about is how much I think there's this wisdom that's that comes internally that's not even from, you know, what you're taught by your parents or TV or society, but it's like we have such a knowing and a wisdom from our own sexual experiences, but also just from our own intuitions that in more people are just like, this is something doesn't feel aligned and are having relationships with themselves. And so being able to, from children, share with our mothers and and experience this change that's coming from different directions, including from like inward, going upward and outward is really beautiful. I, I love my mother. She's so supportive and so amazing. And I the, the messages that I think I was told, I was actually just thinking about it this week. Some of the messages that my mom would tell me around sexuality were things that I would not agree with or would not want to share with my daughter. My, my father, my dad was actually much more open and really empowering. And there's such a healing that's needed and like a, a, a wisdom to evolve our narratives. What would it mean for you to sit down and say, so mom, tell me about your first period. Tell me about your childbirth experience. Tell me about recovery from childbirth. What's your relationship to pleasure? Like opening the dialogue with her and extracting what her experience was because it won't be voluntarily offered. Oh yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. And with our fathers, my dad had this conversation with my brother. I talk about it a lot where my brother was a teenager and had his first girlfriend. And my dad thought it was a parent's duty to make sure that his son learned about the clitoris and that my dad actually dispelled myths because I think Hollywood and movies and porn make it look like everything is about intercourse. When my dad thought it was just really important for him to know that for most women, pleasure is is experienced not necessarily through intercourse or penetration, but through other means. And so he gave my dad that talk. And it was because my dad had had that talk from his father and there's work that that men can be doing in these conversations. And it was actually because my mom was so shy that my dad, <laughs> he opened up conversation with me around learning about women's pleasure because I, I couldn't, I wasn't getting that <laughs> with my mom. So it's, there's a, there's such a beautiful, massive opportunity to be opening those channels across all of our lives. Maybe you can send your dad as a consultant to Facebook. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What would Facebook's policies look like if my dad was inventing them? They'd be very different. <laughs> I have a. Um, I also have this amazing uh, graduate uh, school. My, my writing teacher at Stanford Business School is the New York Times former editor who's so supportive and so passionate about this and makes sure now that all of his students – read these op-eds that I wrote in college where he just thinks that they all need to learn about women's pleasure. And it's just amazing when you meet men that that are accelerating this fight as well, because we need them. We need people and the access to, you know, these other audiences and voices. And it's a, it's a whole team effort. <laughs> but yeah, I think Facebook would be very different if my dad was designing their <laughs> policies for sexuality. Okay. So let's envision together a world where there is intimacy justice, where males 
sexuality, male pleasure, and also male sexual health gets, you know, there are things like andropause, which is the male equivalent of menopause that most women don't know about. And, and the kinds of pain and things that men have in their sexual experience, women also don't know about. So as we move towards a more just world, may the experiences of men and their sexual wellness and their shame issues and all of that, and the solutions for that, be visible and may women's be equally visible so that we live in the sort of half and half reality that we're all half man, half woman, half our father, half our mother, and we hold those poles inside of us. So may it be more just and wishing you all the success possible on behalf of my industry, my own company, and our hopes to have more uh, equitable treatment and women everywhere. Thank you for those blessings and just the intention and power that you put into the world on this and all that you do. It's really beautiful. Well, thanks for listening. You can find Jackie at intimacyjustice.org and join her in her mission. You can also just try talking to people in your life around what beliefs they hold about sexuality, intimacy, women's reproductive health, and where their gaps are and what they'd like to learn more of and just beginning to normalize conversations in your own life with men and women, by the way, sending you huge peace, blessings, complete self-acceptance, complete self-love, and a soul of power that will step out of your comfort zone when you know, when your intuition tells you that something needs to change. And with a joyful heart, be brave enough to change it. You can reach me at the.rose.woman on Instagram or at Rosebud Woman, our company. Seeing you in full health, perfect happiness. Bye.